It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. And the Orioles have won the game. They did it! They did it! They did it! And they're going crazy. They're jumping on each other. One of the most unbelievable finishes you will ever see. And welcome to it, Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Lite, Brett Hollander, and Jeff Arnold. And Jeff, we uh, have had a lot of good interviews, I think, but rarely, rarely have we had a Cooperstown National Baseball Hall of Famer, royalty for baseball, royalty for Baltimore baseball, Eddie Murray, coming up on today's program. I'm so excited for this interview. You're talking about one of the best switch hitters of all time, one of the real pillars of Orioles baseball and the career that he assembled over multiple decades, the leadership role that he played and his part in that 1983 World Series team in the ALCS game that we're going to talk about. Um, he was dead center in the very middle of that. He certainly was a career that went 21 seasons, came up the Orioles very competitive late 70s, obviously a big part of that 79 ball club that won the American League pennant, uh, the almost season of 82, falling a game short in what was going to be Earl Weaver's final season as the Orioles manager, coming back, uh, winning the championship in 83. Obviously, there were up and downs with the fans and media here in Baltimore. Uh, we don't really get into that part of it, but we do get into him uh, being traded for uh, at the deadline in 96 when he joins an Orioles team that was probably not fulfilling its potential. And He'll get into what Davey Johnson asked him to do about that, plus hitting number 500 on the uh, Ripken 21-31 anniversary. And we get into switch hitting, we get into baseball, or Weaver, you name it. So uh, really looking forward to this one uh, with Eddie Murray, truly one of the more menacing figures in the batter's box for any pitcher in the American League in the late 70s and 80s. He was just a hard guy to get out, and he hurt you in so many different ways. And I thought it was funny in our interview how he talked about that sometimes he, he enjoys remembering when he would have those dunk singles that he would throw in there. He hit so many balls hard, obviously, in his career. But sometimes it was those duck snorts that might stand out to him a little bit. Uh, talking to him about that, uh, some of the, the people that he admired watching from an offensive standpoint when he was growing up, as well as um, maybe the, the toughest – pitcher that he faced and you, you certainly heard a great story about that so we cover a lot of ground in this interview and there's just just so much there uh, talking about some individual things with him as well as that 1983 team just an incredible season an incredible career uh an incredible oriole uh eddie murray the uh, switch hitting first baseman and a really good interview coming up but first we want to say thank you medstar nurses during nurses week and every week Every single MedStar health nurse makes a difference for all of us and our communities. Now, more than ever, thank you.
And joining us right now on Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Lite, is Orioles Magic Royalty. The Hall of Famer, Eddie Murray, is with us right now. Eddie, how are you? It's great to see you. Oh, I'm doing about as good as you can do. Uh, you know, we're all on lockdown out here. And actually, I went through a period where I'd gotten used to just lying around in the bed. And now it's like you hit a four-day spell and you're just going crazy. So, uh, you know, I'm back on the, on the part where you, you're just, you know, just really trying to relax and not think too much. Well, let's start with the easy stuff, then we'll get to the fun stuff. Uh, but we do want to talk, oh. of course, about the uh, 1983 World Championship Club you were a part of in Baltimore, uh, specifically the ALCS against the White Sox that year, uh, the big 11-1 to blowout win for Baltimore in uh, Game 3 of that series. And then, uh, you know, everyone remembers the Tito Landrum home run, but you, okay. have, you, you have a huge home run in that first inning uh, of that game. But tell us about that ALCS against the White Sox. Oh, gosh, my, my memory of that, there, there's a few things, and I mean a few. Um, there was still nothing bigger than Tito's home run. And I mean, and I've actually saw him the other day. Um, you know, with me and him talk out here in L.A. He lives out in Calabasas. So uh, I went by there to drop something off for him. And uh, we both are out here with masks, and then we go, he goes, well, you haven't seen me, huh? So he pulls his mask down six feet. He has a white beard also. So we were showing off each other's white beards, you know. And it was, so we, we got a laugh off of that. But I tell you, the other thing was that home run. Uh, to, to jump out, you know, three to nothing in that game was really, really awesome. Now, there's two other things that really, really jump off big during the playoff. Um, after that game, uh, when we won in Chicago, we go to leave. We all on the buses. And for some reason, all three buses or four buses had the same thought. We stopped over there at the White Sox uh, parking lot. And we pulled down all the windows. We opened up the doors. And that song they used to sing, na, 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 <laughs> hey, goodbye. We, we sung that. And they turned around and they applauded us, the fans did. And then they... Uh, uh, they just, you know, start yelling like, good luck, good luck. And uh, we actually won it. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're just crazy little things, uh, you know, about the game. And, you know, that was really kind of big to me. I mean, that, I thought there was also another White Sox fan to do that. Going into game three in Chicago, how much momentum did you think you, you guys had just because – um, Mike Boddicker threw a complete game shutout in game number two where he had 14 strikeouts. I mean, how good were you all feeling going into game three at Comiskey Park? Well, we, we always felt good. And uh, we, we, we had little rituals and stuff, you know, that started with Bunbury where the whole team would get on it before the game would start. And, uh, you know, sometimes things were really good, like, before the final game in Philly, uh, I still will never forget. Richie Dower walks up to me. I got to hit the night before, and he goes, hey, kid, how you feel? I says, what are you talking about? I said, I feel pretty good. What are you talking about? So he starts running around the locker room. The kid's guaranteed it. And I'm going, Richie, what are you talking about? You know, people <laughs> know I'm necessarily eating on me. So he goes, the kid's guaranteed it. So I go, and I hit the first home run. So I hit the first home run, come back, shake everybody's hands, sit down. And I looked down at Richie, 
I said, Richie, that's not it. So I go up and I hit the second one. I go around and run around the base, shake everybody's hand. I sit down and I look down in the bench. I says, Richie, that's not it. So I go up to the third at bat. Then they bring in a left-hander. Now I only had one good swing and that's, well, people wonder why sometimes you don't talk to people. Then they don't know that you're hurt. Well, I only had one good swing. And I, they brought in a left-hander, and I took that one swing, hit it in the upper deck, maybe foul by five feet. Well, if I only got one swing, now it's to try to revert to hitting the ball the opposite field because the one hand was just totally shot for about 15, 20 minutes until the feeling would come back in it. So those are things that I did. I didn't want people to know I was hurt or couldn't swing on one side or another. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I pulled that off, and not many people know about it. So Richie Dower and I'm guessing others called you the kid. At this point, you already had like 150 big league home runs, and they called you the kid? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was always the youngest on the ball club. Believe it or not, starting the season, I was always the youngest on the ball club, I think up until like year seven or eight. I mean, when I was playing, um, I was 17 when I started, so I was just always the youngest guy on the ball club. Mm-hmm. When you, you get ready to, to go into that, that final game, um, it was a very well-pitched game until you finally were able to take control of things in extra innings. Uh, what was kind of the, the message uh, and what was sort of the mood like uh, going into that, that extra inning when both pitchers have been throwing zeros up there? Well, somehow we was hoping we were going to score one. And, and with our lineup, we, would, you know, we thought we were always a pitch away from – putting one on that ball uh, up on the scoreboard. And, um, you know, we, we, we really did have a good ball club. Uh, you know, and like I said, I, that 83 ball club goes back to 82. You know, to lose on the last day of the season. And you hear Earl's report to Joe Altabelli basically was, don't screw it up. You know, in other words, just put that lineup out there. They're ready to play. And it makes you stop and think, well, why don't you come back for the ride, you know? <laughs> well, we ended up getting Joe, and, and what a first year uh, it was for him. What was your relationship like uh, going back to 82 and even when you first got to the ball club in 77 and then, and heartbreak in 79? What was your relationship like, Eddie, with Earl? Oh, Earl loves him, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it started actually before we met, um, Elrod sent a report from Puerto Rico. Uh, uh, he asked Earl, what about this kid, you know, down there? So he said, I'll watch him because uh, Elrod hadn't actually seen me. So Elrod's still catching for a team called Santurce there. And uh, he's watching me and stuff like this. And then for some reason, I get benched for a week. They just sit me down for a week. And, uh, you know, they had an Oreo coast, so they didn't have a problem doing that. He just put me down, so I had to what's what's wrong why, why aren't i playing you know and he goes oh you'll be all right we, we played i'm just giving you a little rest and um they put me in against jackson todd who had a tremendous curveball jackson todd threw me a couple of curveballs up there and i looked like i'd never seen one well Elrod's report back to earl was this kid can hit but if you take him you're better playing he ain't gonna help you off the bench <laughs> so that was uh Elrod's report so, and actually, the first time me and Earl spoke, well, he spoke to me. I didn't say much to him. Spring training starts. And uh, 
Hank Peters thinks I need to go back to Rochester. And Earl says, no, that kid got two hits the other day and drove in three. I'm going to play him again. So this continues during spring training. Finally, uh, Earl, this kid's got to get to his team. And Earl, he told, Earl told him, this kid's team might be here with us. So that particular day or the day later, I hit the ball over the center field wall in Miami Stadium. I think I was the fourth person to ever do that. Well, Earl put in the paper that I was going north with him. Now we, go, we get ready to go north. Well, the whole team is at this little uh, Avis place. And I mean, it was a small room, tremendous humidity there. And everybody's got their tie on, sweating through their jackets. And I got my jacket on, but I don't have my tie on. And Earl comes over and he screams at me. On a public, I mean, a commercial flight, you're supposed to wear a tie. Well, he yells, where's your tie? And I'll just reach in my pocket and I pull it up. And Earl went, well, he's not on the flight yet. He's smarter than we are. I mean, because I'm not kidding. Everybody was just perspiring like you wouldn't believe. Well, I never said a word to him. So uh, I would say the middle of June, he passes me in the tunnel. You know, I'm coming out to the, to the field, and he's going back to the locker room. And he says hi. So I said hi. That was the first time we said hi. And uh, he stopped. It turned out it was Doug the sensei behind me. And he asked, he says, what about that kid? Doug's locker's next to mine. He said, what makes you think he talks to me? But I really talked to Doug. Doug was the first guy in the major leagues. I actually met, you know, uh, you know, on the big league team. So uh, we had so many guys from the Southern California area that we had a team out here. And uh, so Doug ended up being the first guy that I met. In addition to Doug, I mean, who are some other veteran members of those teams that, that helped show you the ropes and how to go about your business in the big leagues? Oh, there was nothing like Lee May. Ooh, Lee May was hard. He was funny. He was, uh, Flanagan always was the king of the one-liners. You know, he wasn't that old, but Flanagan just had some awesome one-liners. He could actually uh, shut Palmer up, you know. <laughs> uh, he, he, he could really, really, he was quick with things um, on that team. Pat Kelly was there. Pat Kelly, you had Kenny Singleton. And it was always jump on the rookies, of course. I mean, I couldn't tell you how many times I heard shut up rookie you know <laughs> next thing they know it's two weeks and i haven't said a word to any of them they go what's wrong with you i said who are you talking to <laughs> you know i don't need you so they you know we had some funny little sayings and some things that would go down but there was some uh real love there because at that particular time there wasn't a, a a whole lot of money there and uh we, we got to watch our families grow uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, we might have had 13 guys from California uh, on that team. And when we would come into Anaheim, oh, those poor angels just, oh, we beat them up. It, it, it was something to watch that. It was something to watch our families grow up together. Then we watched our families start to get a little sick and things. And you watch my father sneaking sandwiches into this guy. He's sneaking a, a cigarette to this one when he gets in the hospital. This is what we saw, and, uh, you, you know, it was just some real love there on that ball club. Eddie, I've heard others tell the story. I don't know if I've ever heard you tell the story about learning how to switch hit and when that decision was made and, and why you were such a natural at it. 
we're in double A and um, we hit in early one day and um, at the end of practice, well, one guy said, it's the last round. All right, so go take three swings. So they get in there and they hit on the opposite side. I said, oh, I'll go in there and take three. So I take three. And Jim Schaefer, the manager, sees me hit him. And he just went like, wow. He can't wait till we get to the next city to say we got early hitting again. So we got early hitting. And uh, he said last round, and he made us take about seven swings. So everybody jumped on the opposite side. And that's when the uh, talk started with the major league club. He says, I got a guy down here. He might be able to hit the ball left hand. And I'm telling you, he might be able to pull this off. Um, I would say it's kids. Um, me and my brothers used to play in the driveway and to, to the game was actually, you would drive like my father and would drive the car directly straight into the garage. Now the garage ran further to the right, but to get a run, you had to hit the ball straight back through without touching the sides of the garage. So also we had to pick lineups. If the guy hit left-handed, you had to get in there and hit, you know, left-handed. But you looked at the paper, the newspaper, and you would see who was in each lineup. And, uh, you know, that's basically the little start that we had at it. But if uh, we were beat up some of the kids in the neighborhood and the scores like 15 to 1 or something like this, then we would get on the left sides and, you know, hit them, you know, just giving everybody a break, but we could still hit. You know, and Ozzie Smith was on this club and stuff also as little leaguers. So we we just played. We were pretty good. To go kind of with the switch hitting, I mean, you always hit with that patented crouch. And a lot of, I'm sure, little leaguers tried to emulate you uh, back in those days. So so what led you to, to hit with the crouch? I had no idea I was hitting in the crouch until I saw a little kid imitating me and I'm saying, well, what's he doing? What's he doing? <laughs> they said, well, he's imitating you. And I'm going, ooh, that's ugly. You know, I really thought that crouch that he was doing was ugly. So I went and really looked at video and I went, ooh, I do hit in the crouch. And I just wasn't a big fan. It just became something that was natural for me to end up in that position. Eddie, is there any idea in your mind, obviously, what happened with your career is spectacular. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves, the Hall of Fame, the 3,000 hits, the 500 home runs. But had you only stuck to your natural side at the plate, what would it have been like? I mean, is there any way to kind of figure that out and calculate that? No, I think hitting left-handed definitely was the best thing, in, you know, in my baseball career that ever happened. I've seen Jim Schaefer since then, and I've thanked him for it. Um, what it did was it, it got you away from, I, I, I think, that right-hander throwing the ball from behind you to, you know, you get the fastball up and in, and you got the curveball running away. Well, this way, you pretty much had everything coming into you. And um, like I said, the, the, the thing that made me, I think, pretty good and, and was the patience that I had. Uh, I didn't try to pull the ball right away. Uh, when I started hitting left-handed, you just you hit the ball sort of where it was pitched. Uh, I can remember the first left-handed home run I pulled like it was yesterday. Uh, you know, that those are moments that I knew I was, I was going to be okay. When you were growing up, what kind of hitters did you watch that, that you admired? 
Oh, gosh. Uh, I'll tell you about my uh, older brother's uh, team that he played on. He played with Willie Crawford, Bobby Tolan, Reggie Smith, Bob Watson, Doc Ellis, Don Wilson threw a no-hitter in the big leagues with Houston, Don Nelson. Um, and we were the bad boys. He's 12 years older than I was. So we were the bad boys. So we'd be out there shagging the balls, getting the ball balls. And we started off as a dime. And we said, we get too many of these balls back. So we said, we're going to hit them up next week with a quarter. So <laughs> we, we bumped it up to a quarter. They weren't going to get the balls back. So, uh, you know, but those were the type of guys that I watched. And I mean, we watched them, man. I mean, we're watching big league players here, and we were the bad boys. And um, I, I never took that for granted. We watched them, and uh, I, I think that was an awesome way to grow up. Eddie, what gives you more satisfaction, 3,000 hits or 500 home runs? <laughs> Uh, I would say 500 home runs. I never considered myself, when, when we got the five brothers together, um, there's two brothers that are pretty strong. And there's the other three were weaklings. So, um, you know, just not to, to ever be into weights. I always told people, you know, they mentioned something about weights. I said, man, don't do weights. Weights are heavy, you know. <laughs> and, and that's just how I approached it. But I learned that my wrist and actually crouching, you know, became power from the legs. So probably the 500 home run. To go specifically to that 500th home run when you were back with the Orioles and you hit it at Canman Yards, uh, what do you remember uh, about that swing and, and about that memory of, of hitting 500? This was a day no one had talked to me. And I came in and I ended up – and rip i said the day's the day i said i'm going deep today so he goes yeah 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 so we go out to run the sprints just before we uh start the game so we run the first one me and him running together we come back and as we start to run the second one they put up that this was the day he tied it and i'm going no and he goes yeah you already said it you gotta do it today <laughs> so i go out here now it starts to rain and uh, I, I, I think I got it under the 12 o'clock hour, which counted for that day I was going to hit it. But uh, it was a whole lot of trying to hit a home run um, at every, everyone else's wishes was a little tough. But I tell you, you know, like I said, when people threw at me or stuff like that, and, and I would come to the dugout and say, guys, next time up, I'm taking him out. And they go, oh, God, you hit a little squibble to third base. How can you say that? And I go up and I go, and they go, how does he do this? I mean, there's no sign that you're on this picture. But, uh, you know, there were things that would kind of tick me off and, and you really hang on that this was going to be that next pitch. But that 500 home run, I think, um, what was the guy's name? He was the uh, psychic or something like that. And I said, no, he bought the ball for a pretty good price. And I was going, well, he's not very good because he should have had someone sitting in that seat. I knew I was going to hit it. But, you know, that was a you know, really, really a, a, a good time, and you know, to come back and get that out of the way. Eddie, uh, being traded back to Baltimore in 1996, 
to hit number 500 and also to be in a pennant race in 1996 uh, in Baltimore. Uh, what did it mean, looking back all these years later, to get traded back to the Orioles? Okay, well, coming back to Baltimore, it was, uh, you know, it, it was time to go from Cleveland. And um, when I came back, I'm saying, okay, I know this place. And they had a pretty good team. Um, I, I, I think they were, you know, I thought that team in Baltimore was better than what we were playing. When I get there, I get ready to go to the field, and Davey Johnson looks at me, and he says, come here. And he starts to tell me, I said, hey, I don't want to hear it. I said, if I see it, I will take care of it. So you started to watch some little clicks and things that were going on on this ball club, I thought was really keeping it from being as good as it can be. I mean, we were still 11 games out, but I really thought that team had the potential to overtake the Yankees during that regular season. And um, I I thought we were going to size up good against them in the playoffs. And, uh, you know, like I said, we had a possibility of just missing from being up 2-0. If we're up 2-0, that does a whole lot of – I don't care who you are as a team. It's tough coming back from 2 nothing, And then uh, you're getting that other team, which would have been us, fired all up. You know, we're up 2 nothing, and let's, you know, get rid of them. Let's take care of them. That was certainly a good team. Uh, but of all the Orioles teams that you played on, which one do you think was the best? On the Orioles teams that I played with, by far, 83. Well, you know, and I'm saying the way we ended in 82 – it was no doubt in anybody's mind that we were going to win. And like I said, that was Joe, I mean, Earl saying to Joe Tabelli when he took over. He said, I'm telling you, these guys are ready to win. All you got to do is put the lineup in there. Put that lineup in there, be, you know, barring the injury, said we we're going to do it. And uh, I don't think anybody really thought about it. We were just going to win. Eddie, this is somewhat of an obscure memory, but – I was at the first exhibition game at Camden Yards in 1992. <laughs> the Mets were in town, and I'm a, I'm a young guy, okay, and I, I knew of Eddie Murray, but I didn't get, have a chance to really see you play in your prime years in Baltimore. And the crowd at Camden Yards erupts. Meaningless game erupts, Eddie, Eddie. Uh, do, do you remember that, coming back, at, wearing a different uniform in an exhibition game? Okay. Yeah, I remember that quite well. Um, it was fun to come back and play that first game there. Um, you know, I, I got the first RBI in that ballpark. Then when I came back to play uh, later on uh, with Cleveland, I'd come in in the first game. I hit the oldest thing in that ballpark, which was the foul pole. And uh, i never forget, uh, you hear it later, but Jim Palmer's on the, uh, he's doing the game. And uh, Mike Messina's pitching. And he throws a change up, he throws another one. And Palmer, oh, this is not a good, I hope he doesn't uh, triple up on this thing. He said, that's a bad idea. And I hit it and hit the foul pole, which was the only thing that came over, I think, from uh, Memorial Stadium. So, you know, like I said, that, that takes over for two firsts. But uh, it, that, that park, I really would have loved to play a whole season in there. I just believe that could have been fun. And what was it like after all those years at Memorial Stadium <laughs> when you suddenly got into Camden Yards and it's the best ballpark in baseball? Right. The humidity in that Memorial Stadium was something. It was uh, 
a little definitely bigger in the gaps. And I mean, I think being in that neighborhood, we had no breeze, so you, you, you didn't have a ball that would travel um, uh, so far. I mean, you know, the plan of that can of yards, it was just, it was a hitter's dream. And uh, I, I still think that's something, um, you know, I, I'm hoping this team gets out of this rut that we've been in. But, you know, and I just think sometimes we, we might have to go for some pitching. I think you can get hitters to come to that ballpark. Hitters are hitters love coming in the uh, Candom Yards and uh, the pitchers. I take. I think if you look directly behind that pitcher, that could almost be 380, 380 feet directly behind it, the pitcher in center field, which makes for you know a shot that anybody in your lineup should be able to reach. You know, not even a power guy, but I'm just saying that, that that's a great hitting ballpark. Uh, and speaking of pitching. Eddie, your career spanning so long, I mean, playing through the 70s, playing at the end of the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, you were one of the few people who can really compare eras of pitching. Tell me about the difference from what you saw when you first started and came to the big leagues to what you saw when you hung them up. Okay. I I heard some of that question, the majority of it, I think. Coming up in the beginning, all we had to go, all I had to go off was Lee May. Lee May would tell you he got a fastball, curveball, and a slider. He didn't tell you what count he was going to throw him on. Um, as you played in the game, you now started to get more information on pitchers. Uh, definitely in the beginning, they could throw the ball where they wanted to. Um, these kids today, they, I, I still don't think a lot of them know where they're throwing it, and they're throwing it much harder. And, uh, you know, I don't understand how and where all these big arms come from, but uh, Nolan Ryan was probably uh, – I would say he's about still about 105. I mean, not being clocked, right, but he could throw a ball. If it was like mid-thigh it could possibly ride up under your chin. And and that's with the delivery also that he had. Like Tom Seaver had a delivery like that. Um, Clemens had it a little bit where balls would just rise. And, you know, you listen to all the experts say the ball doesn't rise, the ball doesn't curve. And you say, would you like to stand in between these <laughs> up here at the home plate and see if it does either one? But it's, it's really tough. I like the uh, – really knowing what people, you know, they could throw the ball where they wanted to. And, hey, probably the, the 80s were really good. And that's when that split finger came in. And that was a pain in the butt. You just really, you know, one day game's going on, playing Jack Morris over there in Detroit, and I'm just watching. And I finally get to the point where I decide, if I see the ball tumble, don't swing because it, it would drop so far that it would end up in the dirt the majority of the time. So, uh, you know, the, these kids today, like I said, the arms are bigger, never had trouble with a fastball. So to me, that wouldn't bother me. Um, you know, I just don't think they throw breaking balls over the plate as uh, well as they did back in, uh, in the earlier days. I'm not sure if velocity will factor into this, but for you, who is the toughest pitcher that you faced? 
Oh, no, it doesn't. Uh, that has nothing to do with velocity. Uh, Earl was going to bench me one night, he said, against Doyle Alexander. And I'm saying, okay, why were you going to do that? And he said, you can't hit this guy. I said, did you really say that? So that night I went out, and I think the first time up, I hit a ball over the fence. Juan Benitez went over and caught it. I hit another ball. I think the uh, uh, the right fielder dove and caught a ball in the gap. Then I almost killed the second baseman with a line drive. Now I'm 0 for 4, and I don't have any hits. And I think the thing that really disturbed a lot of people about me, I could hit the ball hard and just come back in the dugout and put the helmet in that thing, you know. Now, I always thought, and somewhere along the line, I'm going to even this out with a little blue pit. And I, I still talk to people. I'm, I got to tell the story about my most fa favorite hit of all time. We're in Kansas City, and Willie Akins is at first base. I'm hitting Larry Gurr real good. All of a sudden, Larry threw a pitch, and it ran in on my hand, and I did this. And I flip a little furry ball up to first base. Well, Willie Akins comes running in. He takes the dive. The ball bounces off the turf, hits him in the forehead, and goes into the dugout for a double. Now, you talk, talking about raving about that pitch. I mean, I love that. <laughs> but that's what I would, you know, you, you say you back him up to dump all of them in there. You know, but, you know, they said it evens out. I don't know if they even out, but I appreciated all the soft little hits that I got. Well, some 3,000 hits and 500 home runs later. Let's hope it evened out. We'll end on that, Eddie. Uh, great time catching up with you, and we hope you and your family are well. Thank you so much for joining us, Eddie. The one and only Eddie Murray, Jeff. Uh, really a fun interview uh, talking to Eddie. And it was funny because I thought in the beginning he was not nervous, but he was claiming he didn't remember much about the 83 series. And, you know, every time someone says that, you wonder what they really recall. But in the end, his recall was like, you know, pretty much down to multiple very specific moments throughout a 21-year career. So I thought his recall was pretty incredible, if you ask me. Especially what they were doing on the bus when they were in Chicago singing the song and uh, just all the different elements that kind of led up to that eventual World Series in 1983 and some of the other great stories uh, about Earl Weaver when they were together in the tunnel when he hit the home run uh, in Miami over the center field fence, which hadn't happened all that often. I mean, there's so many great stories that are there um, that as you talk to some of these different people, I mean, you, you go back to some of those historic Orioles seasons and interviews with Eddie, with guys like Boog Powell, with Scotty McGregor, and their recall just amazes me. And this is not always the case, Jeff, but I've mentioned this on the podcast before that typically as we use new numbers and, and value certain things more than we used to, I've always felt, you know, the best players throughout history, best hitters throughout history, typically get on base a lot, typically have good command of the strike zone, great plate discipline, uh, walk a lot. And Eddie Murray and his uh, 3,000 plus hits and his 500 plus home runs, no different. I mean, go through it year by year. You see 70, 72, 54, 86, 107, 84 uh, walks. I mean, every year he's up in that number, and that's way before anyone was really writing about the value of that. But I, it's pretty consistent throughout baseball history. I mean, the long history of baseball, going back to Garrigan Ruth. 
If you go back to that 1983 season where the MVP came down between him and Cal Ripken, I was looking at some of the numbers earlier, and if you were maybe judging MVP candidates by some of the metrics that, that mattered a little bit more today, things such as OPS and, and a bunch of those different stats, I would say, and this is no disrespect to Cal Ripken because he had an unbelievable Orioles career, obviously, but I think if you were to compare those two, I could very well see it nowadays if you were voting on those two today for the MVP in 1983 with them being flipped, where Murray wins the MVP and Cal finishes number two. Both are Hall of Fame players. Both had incredible careers, but I would still say that Murray in that 83 season, maybe if you look at at the numbers through the lenses that people are using to pick those types of awards today, that Murray probably would have been the MVP in 83. You're not the first person to say that. By the way, also underrated about Eddie, you saw it there in the background, uh, won three gold gloves, okay? One was in the background there. And if you're wondering about the baseballs, we asked this, uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, that is, Fila did this for every home run he hit, basically a signature baseball, all 504 home runs in the end, uh, the team that it was up against, the location, the date, and the pitcher, uh, and what number it was, one through one, uh, one through 504, uh, pretty cool. Uh, he actually, for those who were just listening, had, you know, I'm not going to say it was David Wells-esque, but some pretty good memorabilia behind him, as you would expect for a Hall of Famer. Yeah, certainly, and, and it's sometimes fun to, to ask these different guys, where do you keep the memorabilia? Like, where, where does it go? And some people like to display it and show you where they've, where they've got it. And others, it might be in an attic someplace where they, they just, you know, they have it. And it's, it's like, hey, it was, it was cool. But, um, but yeah, it, it was really cool to see that set up with all those baseballs stacked. And then on one of his top shelves, you could see the gold glove that, that was there. But uh, an all-time Orioles great who it was, it was fun to talk to him. It was something that I certainly had uh, marked down in my calendar, and, and I'm really excited for some of the conversations we've got with some of these other Orioles greats uh, just around the corner. Yeah, we have some great uh, interviews coming up. But, Jeff, uh, before we say goodbye today, uh, as the day we're recording, opening day in Korea, baseball <laughs> on television at odd hours. The KBO uh, was on early this morning. Uh, and ESPN broadcasted these games, several of them. In did you stay them. up? Did you stay up for it? By the way, were, were you? No, up? no, I think the question is, did you wake up for it? Uh, you could take it either way. Did you wake up for it, or did you stay up for it? I actually did not, but I've enjoyed watching uh, Hansu Kim go oppo today. The former Oriole uh, with a home run, some bat flips. You know, felt like baseball a little bit on my Twitter handle. Well, I, I felt bad for, for Carl Ravitch and Eduardo Perez because I actually was up at the time when the thing came on, and it's a couple minutes before the top of the hour, and they sort, were sort of doing like a little like intro into the game, and it was raining, and the tarp was on the field. So we're starting off, you know, baseball in this state, real baseball, doing rain delay theater, and, and they're just like vamping and filling time. Eventually the game got underway, but there was a little bit of a delay to, to get things underway which I thought was, was kind of funny and, and maybe sort of fitting given the situation that we're in right now. But I think I'll take live baseball any way that I can get it. Uh, I'm enjoying some of these different polls that I'm seeing on social media about, so who's your favorite KBO team going to be? And because, because the LG Twins have Hunsu Kim along with Tyler Wilson, who Steve Molesky did a great interview with the other day, I think I'm going to say my KBO team of choice 
is going to be the LG Twins. Do you want to pick a, a KBO team? I think I'll have to second that. Uh, Tyler, you know, nice gentleman, um, you know, following his career through the minor leagues out of UVA, right? And uh, yeah. Cam, Cam was an interesting guy, uh, someone who really struggled and then when given a chance actually seemed to be the guy they thought they were getting. So uh, I'll take that team. And, and it's interesting you mentioned this. My father loves to tell kind of uh, what I would call, you know, sad or geeky stories about my love affair with baseball and the Orioles and, and sports growing up. And one of his favorites is during the strike of 1994, weeks into it, ESPN for Sunday Night Baseball and their full team, their full coverage, decided to do a minor league game. The minor leagues played on. And I, I was watching Sunday Night Baseball, desperate for baseball during the strike of 1994, hungry for baseball. And then my dad really got a kick out of it. That one game they uh, broadcast, that minor league game they broadcasted, went into a rain delay. And at like 10 o'clock at night, I'm not that old, I'm staying up to watch rain delay coverage of like two really random and obscure minor league teams. Uh, and that's kind of where we're at right now when you're this desperate for something you love. And I actually think that the, the rain delay game that you were talking about was in this athletic piece that I was reading uh, about John Miller and Joe Morgan and Sunday Night Baseball and the history of it in those days when they had to play uh, the minor league games because they didn't have any major league games to call. But uh, either way, great to have some kind of baseball to root for some former Orioles and uh, some, some KBO baseball, which very well might serve as, as somewhat of an example example for how to do major league baseball at some point this year um, with the current landscape that we're looking at that sounds good to me jeff arnold uh we'll talk again in a few days some great guests coming up so can't wait to do it with them looking forward to it brett and uh, really excited for our conversation coming up with chris hoyles on thursday i'm really looking forward to that as well uh one of my all-time favorite orioles jeff thank you so much and everyone be safe out there this has been orioles magic the podcast <laughs>